we were following a lead, uh, Barry's lead, really, to say, um, if you're thinking of doing some research, um, do a bit of work and then present it at the CPD day, and then you, know, you can get some feedback as to whether it's worthwhile. Um, so Adam and I are going to present something that we've been thinking about and doing a bit of work on. Um, I must confess, at this stage, we, our enthusiasm is waning, so unless there's a strong um, indication from the audience that we should continue, we, we may not uh, write this up as a paper. Uh, but what I want to do is really cover briefly the insight or, or the inspiration for, for doing the research in the first place. Secondly, to just share with you some of the um, stuff we've done to date, and it really is just in anticipation of maybe doing a more rigorous um, paper on, on the subject, and then looking at the lessons uh, thus far. And as I mentioned, you know, really we're at that, that um, stage of deciding whether there is anything here worth, worth writing up. Um, what we're what we really looking at is in-hospital claims volatility. Um, our, our inspiration was really one client scheme in particular that had a torrid year last year, and it, it kept the managed care organization and ourselves very busy trying to explain a budget variance that popped up in the first quarter. Um, and when we looked at it, we realized a lot of it was just stochastic and volatility, something you would normally expect given the size of the scheme and given where they were. Um, and yet that didn't, this didn't stop a, a lot of effort going into trying to analyze um, something that was just random uh, movement. And we certainly internally realized that we haven't done enough to understand the extent um, of volatility on um, certainly management accounts and, and medical scheme uh, finances in general. Um, and maybe there were some lessons to be learned about how we were forecasting um, claims. And certainly hospital claims are the, are the biggest culprit. So we've taken five years' worth of data um, from some of our, our client schemes and had a look at the volatility of the hospital claims inherent in that data. Um, Adam's done some more sort of rigorous statistical checks. We were hoping to find some autoregression um, or something there that could um, make our modeling a little bit more sophisticated than it has been to date. Um, and then finally, um, we've run some simulation to say what can we expect, certainly for the smaller uh, schemes and smaller options in terms of volatility um, if one looks at their management accounts um, from, from um, year to year. So really starting with the data, um, this is really the ho hospital claims um, incurred per month for one of the large schemes over the um, five years. And you can see the strong seasonality pattern. I mean, these patterns, you know, won't be, be unusual. Uh, you can see the sort of spikes down in, in December and uh, some, some volatility um, during the year. You can see um, it's the increase due to um, both utilization and, and sort of inflation. Um, and what we did was we sort of retrospectively fitted, um, it's called a claims forecast model. It's not strictly true. We really retrospectively fitted a model that took account of um, the seasonality that took account of the long-term trend in utilization um, and the long-term trend in, um, in cost inflation. Um, and the whole objective here was to try and isolate uh, the residuals. So the difference between the blue line, which was the actuals, and uh, the dotted red line, which was our model representing our, our error, um, and trying to sort of see if we can try and understand that um, variability a bit more. So this was just plotting um, the residuals over, over time. Um, there was sort of 
um, five years worth of um, you know, 12 months uh, times five, so sort of 60 points. And you know, if one looks at the fifth and the 95th percentile, um, you can see there's a, it gives you a range in terms of what, what we're seeing historically um, in the data uh, in terms of um, the, the uh, claims residuals. We then looked at sort of different size um, schemes. So this was a sort of medium size schemes. And you can see what, what you're getting is not completely unexpected. You're getting a sort of broader 95th and 5th uh, percentile range. Um, and it's, it's clearly um, right tail skewed because your, your sort of upper end is, is um, extending far, far higher than, than the lower end. And then we looked at a sort of a very, very small um, scheme to see, you know, what that volatility looks like. Um, and as you can see, it, it gets quite extreme if you get, uh, this is, this is a, very, a very tiny, a tiny scheme. Um, and it was really at that point that I sort of sat Adam down and said, you know, I think we can kind of look through the data, our own client data, and try and get some estimate of, of volatility, certainly on a monthly basis, and then we can simulate that over over sort of annual volatility, which, which we'll show you the results of it later. Um, but what we were noticing is when we looked at the different schemes is that they were impacted by a lot more than, than just size. Um, you certainly had hospital utilization. So if you had a small group of older members, you know, clearly their, their volatility wasn't as, as high as a small group of very young members. So there was a whole lot of sort of confounding factors when we just looked at that. So I sort of asked Adam to have a look at it, um, play around with the, with the distributions, um, see if he could find a way of standardizing um, the distributions by age and gender so that we can, uh, we could run sort of simulations. So look at a, a small group and a large group of the same sort of, sort of makeup. Um, and then he was also asked to, to test for, for autoregression. So I'm just going to hand over to Adam to take you through the, the stats work. Okay. Thanks, Gary, first of all. Um, what we looked at here was firstly we were trying to see if these residuals sort of all look the same across different groups of people. And then secondly, we've seen in a lot of our consulting work that you find that schemes that have a good year one year often have a bad year the next and vice versa. It's not 100% it's not consistent all the time, but often you find that, that, that schemes go through cycles. So first what we did is we... As I say, we specified a model that basically adjusted for utilization, inflation, and seasonality. So there's no clinical adjustments here. Then by life, we sort of had a crude expected, which we, then, which we divided by the actual and essentially showed a distribution. So if you look at the green line, the green line is everybody on these schemes. And it, you can see it, you probably expect a sort of pattern like that. I would have expected it to be a little bit more right skewed than that, but it's it's actually a lot more symmetric than you'd expect. What we found interesting here is the blue line is males, the red line is females. The female claims are a lot more consistent and a lot more stable. There's a lot more variability in the male claims than there is in the female claims. So what we then did is we looked at it by gender and age band. Remember, these are not adjusted for any clinical factors. It's only utilization, seasonality, and inflation. What we found, and these are the male residuals by age band, so each line is a different age band. What we've actually done, just for ease of sort of viewing of the graphs, we could have put the raw data here, but it, you get volatility and spikes, which makes it look a bit awkward to interpret. So what we've done is we've sort of fitted a smooth curve to each 
age band and each gender band. Just so that you can see what's going on, as opposed to having spikes all over the place which confuse the graph. What surprised us was how similar all of the age bands looked. As I say, there's no clinical adjustment here. There were sort of a couple of age bands that look out of whack, and that's, but generally it's your children. So we're saying that simple model is probably not appropriate when you've got younger members. You, first of all, you've got many, many fewer claims, so you'd expect more volatility. And secondly, you seem to have a, a slightly lower mean for whatever reason. So that was the first thing that sort of surprised us. Then the next slide, yeah. And the other thing was that the, the older ages were a lot more consistent than the younger ages. There's a lot bigger spike in the middle and lots, lot thinner tails for the older ages. We sort of surmise that probably because when you reach that 70 plus age, you've, you've probably got more similar admissions than you sort of have in your, in your teens and your 20s where you've got accidents and all sorts of things going on. They tend to all be the more degenerative chronic type conditions when you get to that older age band. The next couple of slides are the females. You've got the same thing with the children. Those are the child age bands again, but you can see that the, the female distribution is a lot more peaked in the middle than the male distribution. And those particularly peaked age bands are your childbearing age bands. So again, we surmise that because you've got a lot of maternity claims sitting in your band, in those age bands, they tend to, to, to cluster together and you have less sort of variability there. As I say, what was interesting to us, and this is just a demonstration of how these curves were fitted, the blue bars are the actual data that we had, and the red line is the model we fitted to it. So we surmised with the children that it was possible that the model was wrong, i.e. the distribution we'd specified was wrong. But it seems not to be the case. It just seems that distribution is parameterized differently for children, i.e. you've got slightly lower claims and you've therefore got a, you've got a slightly lower mean than you'd expect. And sort of, this is all very interesting, but our sort of principal objective here was we consult to schemes. So we're saying, and I'll go through the formula just now, <laughs> don't look too shocked, but we're sort of saying, can we systematically explain whether a good year follows a bad year, i.e., can we find any evidence of, of a sort of consistent cycle that we can use basically to tell trustee boards not to panic when they see a massive budget variance in the first quarter of the year. So we then tried to do some time series work. And just this, the, these, this slide really is just a reminder for the people who've forgotten or who never remembered in the first place like I did, I had to go and find these things. But essentially, and I'm not going to go through the detail, but essentially an autoregressive model means that the, the value of the current observation of the time series depends on a certain number of prior, certain number of prior values, individually. So you, for example, if you've got, if you've got first order auto, we call it autocorrelation, if you've got a first order effect, so you've only got one lag there, essentially it means either that bad follows bad or bad follows good, depending on whether your sign of, of your, what are they, phi's there, coefficient is, is negative or positive. So that's the sort of effect we're looking for, i.e. that sort of sine wave cycle type effect. A moving average model is sort of similar but not quite the same. Essentially, instead of depending on each observation individually, it depends on the average of a certain number. And obviously you can have combined, you can have, the, you can have combined, you can have non-stationary series, you can have what are called ARIMA, autoregressive integrated moving average models. You can have a variety of variants. But essentially what we were trying to see here was if there was any sort of systemic time series effect in these residuals that we found. 
That was really what we were testing for. Again, this is just a reminder. I've tried to put it in words so it's not quite so scary. Autocorrelation function is essentially a correlation between either consecutive or lags at a specific period of a time series. Partial autocorrelation function is basically an autocorrelation function but corrected for the effects of the previous lags. So at, at, at a lag of one, your two functions are the same. At a lag of two, your, your autocorrelation is just a simple correlation between xt and xt minus two. Your partial autocorrelation is that same correlation, but stripping out the effect of the common term, xt minus 1, which sits in the middle there. None of which is really very important. The point of the story really is that if your ACF sort of goes down in a symmetric pattern, it can alternate up and up, but if it sort of dies down consistently, and your PACF cuts off, it indicates that you've got autoregression, or you've got autocorrelation in an autoregressive process. If it happens the other way around, you've got a moving average type structure. And really, the objective was to test if our residuals followed either of these. And the answer is on the next slide. And admittedly, these are quite short time series, because I combined them into quarters, because there just weren't enough. There just was too much variability. You were seeing noise instead of trends with the monthly data. But essentially, we got nothing. You can see that spike there is an autocorrelation between time, an autocorrelation at lag zero which is essentially a correlation of xt with itself, which is always going to be 1. But aside from that, we really got nothing. So essentially what we found was that once we stripped out the effects of inflation, seasonality, and utilization, essentially what was left was noise. And this, bearing in mind, was quite a big scheme, so that we sort of partially expected it. But again, what we actually saw was there was a pattern of some description, but we didn't quite have a long enough time series to to really do anything with. But essentially what we had was nothing. So it means really from a forecasting point of view that a bad quarter could mean one of two things against budget. Either your budget is wrong, and failing that, it's probably noise. So it's a case of, first of all, not panicking, and second of all, trying to investigate whether or not your budget is wrong. So now I'm gonna hand, gonna hand back to Gary, and he's gonna run through the simulation work that he's done. Thanks, Adam. So you can see where our enthusiasm was waning in terms of this investigation. Um, but it, it did enable us to have a, a, a hard look at the way we were forecasting. Um, because clearly what was happening when we were having a bad year, or client was having a bad year, we were forecasting, we weren't stripping all of that out in terms of st stochastic variation, and we were forecasting some of that bad year forward. Um, and then getting what looked like a good year, but it was really just a, a, a bad budgeted um, next year. And, and the same thing was happening with, 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 a, with a good year. We were, we were forecasting part of that variation forward in, in terms of our claim forecasting. Um, but. So what I did was I said, well, let, let's see how much this adds, this bad budgeting, if you like, um, or crude budgeting, how much it adds to this variability that one might see in, a, in, in, you know, in the management accounts of, of these medical schemes. So what we did is we said, we're first looking at sort of year-to-date hospital claims, um, and we're looking at the claims variation measured against budget. We're obviously going to use the, um, the distribution work that Adam had done to, to do the forecasting in terms of the claims. Um, but the bad budgeting sort of model was to say, if we take the prior year six months experience, and we assume that was used as the reference point for budgeting without adjustment, so we just took that as the reference point and, and forecasted that forward. We're now taking, you know, if it is a bad um, experience here due to 
purely stochastic variation. We're now taking that bad year and projecting it, it forward. Um, you know, what, what would the, um, what would the, what would the um, errors terms look like or the residual terms look like? And one gets sort of, this is sort of forecasting for, for, the, for the year, January through to December. I mean, it's the obvious point that in January you have your highest variability because you've only got one month. Whereas by the time you get to December, you're actually averaging out over the, the 12 months. So a lot of the angst in the client base happens in, in the first quarter. And then as they go through the year, it sort of settles down because, um, you know, you, you, you might still see part of that experience later on, but it's, it's diluted because you've got, got some averaging. Um, we were obviously quite interested in, you know, the 95th percentile or the top of the bar there um, because we've got about, 20 odd, odd, odd schemes we look at, and you know, one in 20 is going to have a bad, a bad year. So we, we need to sort of recognize that in our client base, we're always going to have a bad apple or a bad year, and we need to sort of find a way of, 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 of identifying and explaining it. Also, what the work that Adam had done, just looking at the different um, age bands and gender bands, enabled us to construct um, different risk pools. And we were interested in the sort of 2000 500 member risk pool because that's the sort of um, regulator's view on you know the appropriate size for an option. Uh, then you've got your 6,000 member risk pool all the way down to sort of very very big schemes at sort of 150,000. Um, and we were looking again at um, the 95th percentile, so that top of the bar um, over the the period. And one of the first things to notice is we we were factoring in a lot of um, error, a lot of variability because of this crude budgeting, because we were taking basically um, blindly a six-month experience and forecasting it forward without, without adjustment. Um, so that was accounting for a lot of, a lot of the variability we're seeing up the, you know, up the vertical axis. But also what was interesting is that there was not much difference between our 2,500, our 6,000, you know, and our 12,000. Um, in fact, you know, this idea of 6,000 5,000 is a risk pool that's unsustainable, but 7,000 is sustainable. You know, it didn't seem, didn't seem to be playing out here. There wasn't a, an obvious point at which the risk pool became viable and, 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 and another risk pool too, too small. Uh, just remember, we're looking at hospital claims only. So in a normal risk pool, you'd have um, a lot of diversification with, with your other the claiming patterns or your other um, claiming types. And so the first lesson we've, We've learnt and, and, you know, have now corrected in our, in our sort of forecasting. In fact, we, we already did this last year, was, was to look carefully at the way we were forecasting claims forward. So if we take this as an example, we're saying if I take out of my simulations one of my 80th percentile um, 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 lines in the sort of simulation sheet, um, it looked like that. So, we, you know, this is anything above one represent something worse than, um, than average. And given that this was a, a period that was, you know, on the 80th percentile, um, all, all five months were worse than average and sort of April, a really terrible, terrible month. The crude model for forecasting was really to say, um, let's, take the, let's take the average of those five as indicative of the year and let's forecast forward at that level. And that was creating a lot of error because, you know, clearly this was this wasn't the underlying trend. This was just simply, you know, the experience of that particular year. Our model as it existed sort of a year ago was um, adjusting for quite a bit of that variation. Um, so the green line was effectively where we were projecting forward. So 
we were stripping out high-cost hospital claims. We were making assumptions about reversion to the mean for, for the balance of the year. There, there, was, there was quite a bit of sort of adjustment done, but we weren't adjusting for it all. I mean, that was our learning. You know, there was still quite a bit of variability that was still um, in our forecasting methodology. So we were still forecasting forward um, a bad news year, um, some of that bad news, and, and, and in particularly, you know, a good news year, we were forecasting forward some of that, 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 that good news, um, which was giving rise to this gut feeling that, a, you know, a good period of experience would be followed by a bad and a bad period of experience would be followed by a good. Um, and as Adam said, it was nothing to do with the underlying uh, volatility in, in the data. It was really just a reflection of, of how our forecasting wasn't factoring in the full, the full volatility of the hospital claims. So what we did is we stripped out, we said, well, let's assume we can now, you know, budget accurately. We don't have to build in a, a, a budget um, error in terms of our, our forecast. Um, and then we looked at, again, those, those sort of different size uh, groups. Um, all of these are pretty much standardized, so they represent the same gender and age makeup uh, risk pool. They are all quite young. So we've, we've used quite a young profile. And, you know, often when you get to the smaller options, they tend to be quite old. So they, um, you know, even though they've got a small number of members, they've got quite, high, you know, high hospital utilizations. They don't behave as, as volatile, you know, with as much volatile as, as this group. Um, but we were sort of interested to see, you know, how the, certainly the 2,500 and the 6,000 um, groupings behaved. Um, and you can see they're very, very similar. Um, and one of the things that struck us was to say, if we took a three-year average, if we were able to average out this claims, well, firstly, if we could isolate it accurately, the, the, the uh, volatility in the hospital claims, and then we were able to average it over a three-year period, we could take these fairly small groups and give them a similar um, consistency or, or, or you know, volatility to a fairly substantial group. This, this, this line represents a 50,000-member scheme. So using a three-year average uh, methodology, we could really run a very small uh, scheme or option with the consistency of a very large scheme. So, you know, again, it was feeling that we were missing a trick here. You know, instead of persecuting the small options by asking them to close down or, um, you know, not registering a scheme because it was below a certain level, one could, um, by just looking at accounting or, or measuring it a little bit differently, you know, one could, could um, smooth out that volatility quite comfortably. And this is quite an important issue, I believe, certainly for, for where we are currently. Um, we just had a, a session um, that Emil Stipp presented around low-cost low um, limbs-type options. Um, you know, basically what, what was being said is if an employer... Um, would, would, would have a compulsory membership um, option um, extracted as a limbs, it would be quite a, you know, some, a desirable thing to, to happen. Um, I mean, an employer right now would, through a restricted scheme, be able to offer exactly that without having to have a concession around um, the compulsory nature of the option. It's just that it's difficult for employers with restricted schemes, certainly they don't have one, you know, it's difficult to get a new scheme regulated. It's difficult to justify a scheme of a small, um, you know, smaller than 6,000 to the regulator. So, again, the sort of learning here and the plea here is to say maybe there's a different way of looking at volatility in these smaller schemes um, and, and trying to encourage 
um, uh, growth of smaller schemes rather than to try and, um, you know, encourage what's been happening up till now is more bigger schemes and fewer smaller schemes. So our kind of learning is threefold. You know, one, I think there are lessons, there are certainly lessons that we learned in the claims forecasting and, you know, there, there may be lessons for, for, for you guys that, you know, that variability, certainly in the hospital claims, is, is, is significant and you must be, make sure that you, you strip it all out before you do your forecasting. Otherwise, you're going to have that um, boom and bust type experience that, that, that we were seeing. Secondly, from a reporting point of view, I think, you know, even if we, we're not allowed to from a, um, a financial reporting point of view, from a management accounts point of view, it's certainly possible, uh, certainly in the first um, quarter results, is to smooth um, the hospital variation. So you get a much better idea of what, what the underlying trend is. Um, and if you're looking at uh, what, what to smooth, I mean, the top 10% of your hospital claims are going to account for about 50% of the cost. And it's those that, that you need to smooth. So you need to, it's not just about the, the million rand case. It's, it's, really, it's really down to the top 10% of hospital cases that you'd have to start smoothing to make any um, reasonable effect. But it, it's quite useful to try and unpack the experience that has happened, um, you know, in the first quarter so that, again, schemes don't panic um, that they've got their budget wrong. And then lastly, there's some sort of thoughts around scheme reserving. I know there's a lot of risk-based capital debate um, going on, um, but it seems to me or seems to us that it's, it's, one, one could come up with quite a crude and quite an effective way of um, managing these small risk pools. In the same way as the investment revaluation reserve, and I know, you know a lot of us really don't think it makes much, much sense from a, you know, an, uh, an actual point of view, but if one took that logic and said, for a smaller scheme below a, a certain threshold, um, they, would be, they would be required to hold a, um, a hospital smoothing reserve um, in addition to the, whatever the statutory solvency was, was required. It would quite easily address this um, you know, stability for the smaller schemes. It would quite easily address this need for smaller schemes to hold bigger reserves. And it would give everyone, the trustees and the regulator, an idea of how well they're pricing because you would have this smoothing experience over, you know, over a long period and you could see whether they were making adequate provision for, for their hospital volatility. Um, so really the, the, the thought here is to sort of say maybe you know, going the risk-based capital model is, is an interesting debate, but maybe we shouldn't use it um, you know, to try and unpack the difference, maybe that it should be looked at from a, an industry point of view as, as a whole, and we should leave the, the small versus large risk pools to, to some form of more crude smoothing, which is much more practical and, and, and much more useful um, for, for trustee boards and the rest of us dealing with it. So really, thank you. As I said, we, we set out last year, we spent a lot of time looking at our own client data, and we pretty much it, it's, 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 it's um, achieved what we try to achieve. We've adjusted our claims forecasting model. Um, we think that uh, this, this, this reserving issue might be an interesting one. Um, but we still have, we're still debating whether there is any merit in, in, in writing um, this up or doing some more research. We pretty much have to start from scratch um, because, you know, what we've looked at to date is very much crude and a little bit ac academic. So, I guess it's a, it's a call out there that if anyone's interested um, in looking at this either with us jointly or, or, or you know, on, on your own, give, it, give us a shot because I think there is, there is quite a bit of um, more work that we could do as a, as a profession in this, in this area um, in terms of claim forecasting 
um, and trying to interpret bad and good years. Okay, thanks. Um, thanks um, I just have one question, if you go to the next slide, Gary. If you have so many numbers with no results, no, the f go forward. Past your thank you. Why don't you have more of these in your presentation? It's just a joke. I, I, I sneaked this in, by the way. Because um, <laughs> I had a bit of pre-sight on, on what the presentation was going to be. Um, so that was a rhetorical question. Uh, but anyone, does anyone have real question for Gary and Adam? I mean, certainly to me, it's some interesting things. I mean, we've seen similar issues in small schemes and how to price them and how to avoid volatility in that. Thanks, Alex. I think we need to run a question asking course as part of the CPD program. Um, so, Gary, before you mentioned reserving at the end, I'd actually made a note that on that particular point, uh, I think it definitely has an application for reserving. I think there's much too much anxiety about small schemes, particularly small restricted schemes that have stable risk profiles. Um, if you do the maths um, and you, you construct a theoretical model around claims volatility and, and what reserve levels very small schemes would need, um, the theory would tell you that many of the schemes we have on the very small end of the market should have gone bust many years ago, when in truth they don't. Um, I mean, we have schemes, you know, that are very good going concern schemes that are under 5,000 members, um, that are nice, tightly defined employer groups, their risk management is very good. Uh, the claims volatility is there, but it's manageable. Uh, and I guess they, they have a track record long enough that they're willing to ride it out. So, I mean, if you ask me whether the research is worthwhile, I would say definitely. I think for, to make it practically useful for trustees, it require uh, proper framing um, so that they, you know, they were able to get to grips with the, the technical detail in a way that's meaningful to them. The one question I had was how you avoid the timing the market risk. Um, that you know, you, you're obviously fitting the data historically using seasonality and what we expect the volatility to be, but making a call on, you know, on a quarter or six months worth of data, whether that's the bad year or whether it is an actual funder, you know, mental change in the underlying level of claims, that's a tricky one. Uh, you, know, you don't want to get caught with your pants down the other way either, where you think, oh, no, no, that was just a bad year. We don't need to build that in in the future because then it'll hit you with a double whammy in the next year. Thanks, Barry. Yeah, yeah, I think we didn't set out on the reserving point, but I think that's the kind of nugget that's come out, is really to say maybe we should do a bit more work on the reserving levels that are required for these smaller risk pools and the mechanism for, for doing the smoothing. Just on the identifying a good or a bad year, we, we did find that model of if, if you crudely take your top 10% of cases, uh, and I'm talking in hospital only, um, and you smoothed them over three years or even just excluded them completely and looked you know, at, at the experience of, of the bottom 90%, it'll account for about 50% of your hospital costs, but it gives you a good sense, you know, of where, of where your long-term trend is. So there is, a, there is quite a, a neat, very easy way of... of you know, asking yourself that, is this a bad year or is this a bad, you know, is this bad budgeting? It's not foolproof, but it, it's, it's something I would do first. Um. Thanks. Any other questions? Um, Michael Edge, uh, RGA Reinsurance. Um, I was just wondering whether potentially using working cover excessive loss would be helpful um, for those smaller schemes to smooth out the volatility you're talking about. Uh, and you know, even with high reserves, um, it would help smooth out the, the contribution increases year on year. Um, so I don't know, that's perhaps something that the, could be looked at, yeah. 
No, I think I think exactly that. I mean, I think one of the things that we it struck us was that you know this whole reinsurance debate. There's a, a real there's a real place for it. Um, into if if we can't find a mechanism like the revaluation reserve mechanism within the scheme to do it, there, there is there is an option to do it. You know, externally. Um, so I, I agree. I think I think there's a there's a strong argument to do that. Um, thanks, Gary. So are you going to keep on going with your study? Um, yeah, I, th I think if there's anyone interested, you know, either just to say, look, you have some help in framing it, or, or we think it's worthwhile, or uh, we quite, I think we quite like to do this research across firms. So, you know, it tries to get away from this, uh, you know, we've got a better, <laughs> we've got a, you know, better way of looking at it than others. So I think we'll, we'll wait to see what feedback we get and, yeah, hopefully, hopefully do, do carry on with it. Okay. Anyone last questions? Yeah. Yeah. Last question now. But this might be a silly question, but one of, one of your recommendations <clears throat> is that um, in order to not project bad years forward and, and good years forward, you should remove residuals from your base year that you're projecting from. How do you decide which portion of the actual experience is the residual and um, yeah, how do you go about smoothing that? You see, un unfortunately, we come back to the point of budgeting. You can create, as we did here, a long-term, Gary called it a forecast model. It's not quite a forecast model because it's fit to pass data. But what we found is that actually that model fits surprisingly well. And, well, number one, it fits surprisingly well. And number two, especially for the schemes that we know that have stable risk pools, that long-term trend factor that's used in that model is very similar to what gets used in the budget. <coughs> so essentially, you could, in theory, Project your data forward using that longer-term trend plus seasonality, and you can calculate residuals that way. Obviously, it's not perfect, because you may have a significant change in the inflationary environment. But theoretically, you could do something like that. Again, it comes back to the point that, that Gary's made and that Barry made, is that if you're going to do that, you've got to be reasonably certain that your budget is correct. If your budget is wrong and you're projecting off a wrong budget, then you're going to get yourself into all sorts of trouble. But as we say, our, over the longer term, the inflation assumptions don't seem to be the problem with the budget variability. The budget variability seems to stem more from the claims base that you use than the inflationary factor. Those inflationary factors are often a lot more stable than we think. So, you, so it's not an insurmountable obstacle. Accepted, it is a problem, but it's not necessarily an insurmountable obstacle, especially given the sort of stability we've seen. Okay, thanks. Let's wrap it up. Uh, thanks, Gary and Adam.